I, I don't know about you, but if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus, today is the greatest performance, if I could put it that way, in the history of the world when our God resurrected a dead, lifeless body of his son, and he came walking out of the tomb. You know what I mean? So I know that some of us come from cultures that tend to be more reserved. I am one of them. But man, today is a day in which it's appropriate, and frankly, I think it's needed that we, with not just our voices, but with our bodies, express how we feel and what this day means. You know what I mean? And so Carlton has led as well in that, but with no music, no nothing, clap to him for this amazing day and what it represents. Yeah. Amen. 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 And as Pastor Michael uh, earlier reminded us throughout today, he will, I will, worship leaders will say, Christ is risen, and you will say, Amen. Really, the thesis for today uh, is simple and yet profound and I think difficult to get around. And that is this. I, I think you would agree. It's amazing how much we as human beings could endure when we are convinced that there is a purpose to our struggle. Let me say that again. Having been not just a pastor for all these years, but having lived 40-some years, it's amazing how much people, human beings, even in the most difficult circumstances, could endure when they know and believe in their heart of hearts there is a purpose to this struggle. Put another way, I think many times we underestimate how much, how we live now, today, presently. How much who we are now, presently, today, is shaped by what we believe our future to be. We underestimate the power of how you and I live today, day to day. How much this is impacted and influenced by what we believe our future to be. It's a historical fact. When you pick up a book like The Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Starks. By the way, if you are a non-Christian or just on a journey and on Easter Sundays, we have folks all the time who come who are just sort of investigating Christianity. You can't get much better than a book. It combined both history and sociology and looking at the early church. And he says that there are, among others, three reasons why Christianity exploded onto this very pagan Roman world. Number one. When epidemics would hit the Roman cities and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people would die, people would literally take their beloved family members who were sick and because they didn't want to die, would throw them out under the streets. Christians, this is a historical fact, would go out into the streets and bring these sick people back into their homes and care for them, knowing that many times that they themselves were going to die. Secondly, when Christians were persecuted for their faith and killed and tortured, thrown into the den of lions, Christians didn't retaliate via terrorism. They didn't retaliate with guerrilla warfare. Christians died singing, forgiving their persecutors, forgiving their enemies. Third reason. When Rome conquered that part of the world, one of the things that happened with all the national borders were opened. Why? Rome controlled everybody. Everybody was subjected to Rome, which meant all of a sudden now, these cities that had been mono-ethnic, mono-racial became very multi-ethnic and multi-racial because people were able to cross borders. And one of the consequences of that was there was enormous racial and ethnic strife in these Roman cities. And Rodney Starks makes the case that for the first time, an institution arose that brought people of different ethnicity and race together. And that had never happened before. And that was the church. The question is why? why? Why were Christians so much more compassionate to the sick? Why were they so much more forgiving to their enemies? 
and persecutors? Why were they so much more ethnically inclusive than anyone had ever seen? People ask, were they just better people? Were they just more virtuous? Were they just nicer? Were they just more enlightened than we are today? No, it all depended on what they believed their future to be. It all depended on what they believed their future to be. Their pagan neighbors had had absolutely no understanding of ultimate future. And it was shrouded in mystery. There was a tombstone epitaph that was so popular, it was written both in Latin and Greek. And you found it all over. I want to put it up there. This is the most popular tombstone epitaph that people saw. It literally said, I was not, I was, I am not, and I don't care. I was not, I was, I am not, and I don't care. The pagan neighbors had absolutely no understanding about their future, life after death. But Christians, CC, thank you for reminding us all this morning, we're people of hope. Can I just define what hope is? Hope is not, well, you know, I hope so. Hope is joyful conviction based on compelling evidence. Hope for a Christian is joyful conviction based on compelling evidence. Christians didn't fear death, caring for the sick, because they believed that someday they were going to be resurrected. Christians didn't persecute their uh, uh, persecutors because they believed that there is an ultimate judge who one day will make everything right. The Greeks and Romans had no concept of a final judgment. Christians did. They said, I don't have to judge because one day an ultimate judge will come and make everything right. Because they had joyous certainty about their future, Christians lived in all of these days radically different. And by the way, that's what gave their lives and their witness credibility to their unbelieving neighbors. And somebody says, that's eh, interesting, Peter. But how, how does anybody know anything about the future? How do, we, how do we know? And the answer to that and the key dynamic to that is what? The resurrection. It's the resurrection. When they looked at the resurrection of Jesus, one, it gave them certainty of their future. That, that future God promised to happen. And then secondly, the resurrection gave them the shape of that future. What does that future look like? So we're going to look at those two today. And they're all going to go out and have wonderful brunches and lunches and do whatever you need to do <laughs> with your plans. This is actually kind of a part two of a part one that started last year, actually. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we find ourselves. So open your Bibles with me, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Verse 3, he says, For I received, I passed unto you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And every Easter, just about, I talk about this, right? I talk about this because this is so important. Because still to this day, I talk to non-Christians who actually say to me, you don't actually believe that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. And then they see this, which is interesting. They go, people back then believe that. Because, you know, people back then believe stuff like that. They're ancient people. They didn't believe in science. And they weren't modern. They weren't educated. They, you know, believed in those kinds of supernatural things. We today are different. We today, and our worldview is different. We believe that we're educated, modern, scientific. So there is this ignorance of the... First century worldviews. Now, real quick, I need to do this every Easter because that's just for non-Christians, but for Christians. You need to know that their faith was grounded in something that was substantive. There are two worldviews that people back then believed. One was the worldviews held by the Greeks and Romans. What they believe? They believe that the body, the matter was evil and that the spirit and soul was good. So the ultimate goal of life is to shed this thing called the body. Have your spirit freed. 
the thought to a Greek Roman that you would actually die and you would actually get your body back was not only um, uninteresting, but it was uh, not attractive, to say the least. Then you had the Jews. And the Jews had a worldview that was quite different. Jews believed actually in something called the resurrection. That word was around way before Jesus' resurrection, by the way. The Jews believed in something called the resurrection. Here's what they said. They said that when God created the world, he didn't create a world of evil and injustice and sin. But when man sinned, evil and justice and sin entered into the world. And so the resurrection, the Jews believed was this, that one day that God was going to come back and that he was going to cleanse and purge our world of evil, sin, and injustice and make everything right. They believe that today we are living in what was called the age, the present age, and that one day the age to come, that's what they believe, age to come called the resurrection was going to come. And when God finally comes to restore, renew all things, this is key, that the resurrection was going to be dramatic, it was going to be obvious, it was going to happen on a global scale, and that everybody was going to be privy to it. The thought of one man rising in a non-dramatic way, while the rest of the world still experienced injustice, evil, and sin, was absolutely unimaginable to a Jew. That's why gospel writers say when Jesus rose from the dead, all, the, all of his disciples who had heard for three years, I'm going to die and rise, I'm going to die and rise, I'm going to die and rise. Nobody is at the tomb. Why? I couldn't believe it either. Nobody actually believed that what Jesus said was going to happen, was going to happen. And somebody says, well, why, why, why did they believe then, Peter? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Paul mentions it here. And why the disciples believed. Listen, first thing, verse 4, it's an empty tomb. The second thing he mentions in verses 5 to 8 are the eyewitnesses. Some said they saw him one-on-one. Some said they saw him in groups. Some said that 500 people Jesus, saw Jesus at the same time. And some people said they saw him repeatedly for 40 days. Now, you've got to understand something. First Corinthians was written 20 years, 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 20 years. And in Pax Romana, when travel was easy, and you could get to just about anywhere in a short span of time, nobody, nobody in their right mind would make a claim 20 years later that something like the resurrection happened unless you had the guts to say, you think I'm lying? You think I'm telling the truth? Here's the thing. Go over to Palestine and ask the people because they're still alive. You know what this is like? This is like somebody claiming that their uncle died and three days again rose from the dead in 1996 in Chicago. I was there in 1996 in Chicago. You don't make that kind of a claim 20 years later until you're willing to say what? If you really think I'm lying, go check it out. Paul is saying that, this this is all I'm saying for now, okay? This is how Christianity started. It's not even historically debatable. We know, we know that the disciples went and said, I know it's crazy. I can't, I couldn't believe it either. You know me, I'm a Jew. I don't believe in resurrection like that. I'm a Greek Roman. There's no way I'd believe that. But I saw him. I touched him. I put my fingers in the... So if you sit there today and you go, oh, I can't believe in the resurrection because people back then, they believed it. You have to do better because they couldn't believe it either. Are you with me? You have to do better because they couldn't believe it either. It was absolutely unbelievable. The only way that anyone embraced the resurrection was by the letting the evidence challenge and ultimately change their worldview. They didn't get it through, you know, wishful thinking. They got it through thinking. Peter, why are you being so rational on Easter? Oh, we'll feel good. We'll feel good. Tulips are out, cherry blossoms. We don't feel good. Here's why I'm being rational, okay? Don't you want what they had? Don't you want what they had? And they were being thrown to the lions. They sang. You might not be thrown to the lions, but you know what you're facing today? You're facing lumps. You go to the doctor. Doctor says there's something not right. We're going to have to biopsy that. How do you face that? With joyful conviction. How do you face anything that life throws at you with joyful conviction?
Don't you want what they had? Actually, do you have what they had? Do I have what they had? Where does this bring us? This is what it brings us. People have said to me over the years, Peter, if I become a Christian, will it meet my needs? Wrong question to ask. Don't ask if Christianity will meet your needs. Ask, is it true? Did it happen? Because if it happened, it will meet your ultimate needs. Did Christianity did Christ really rise from the dead? Don't ask if I became a Christian, will, will my life be fulfilling from here on out? Wrong question to ask. Ask, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is it true? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's all be honest here. None of this matters. But if Christ did rise from the dead, then no matter what you face in life, no matter what you face in life, you could stare that thing in the eye and saying, you don't scare me. Do you have that joyful conviction? Do I have that joyful conviction today? Is there somebody out there today who's saying, I wish I had that kind of faith. I wish I could believe like that, Peter. I'm just not the believing type. I'm not going to let you get off that easily. We all have faith. We all have amazing. I would argue some of y'all have fierce Fierce, fierce faith. You know what that is? Your faith is fiercely attached to the belief that you are in control of your life and that you are competent and that you are ultimately in control. I don't know about you, but that takes a ton of faith to believe. Can I get an amen? Amen. I don't, know, I don't want to offend anybody. Actually, I do. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It takes a ton of faith to believe. Ton of faith to believe. And it takes tremendous faith to believe. I am totally in control. I am the captain of my ship. I have my plans. And it's going to go exactly as I want. That takes a lot of faith, my friends. Here's what I'm saying. Will you consider the possibility that maybe your doubts about Jesus is not an issue of lack of information, but maybe it's a commitment deal. Maybe you're somebody who generally believes in God, but you've never surrendered your life to God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're just like, yeah, kind of, you know, I attend church. But, but the reason why you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, it's not an information. I just need to be intellect, but maybe it's a commitment to you. Because make no mistake about it. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it changes everything. Because a person who overcomes death, who ultimately defeats death, he needs to be listened to. What that person claims demands a response. In other words, the resurrection makes a claim on you and a claim on me. Can I just ask, for there are some of us, who are kind of in this place of, it's not an information deal, Peter. It's a c- commitment deal. To, to, to let them know they're one thing. But how many of us, the biggest barrier to overcome, to surrender our life to Jesus, wasn't an information deal, but it was one of, I'm afraid to give up control. I'm afraid. Raise your hand. I'm afraid to let go. I'm afraid. That's, anybody? Anybody? What's that? Look around. So if you're sitting here, Maybe this is the reason why you've pushed aside asking and making that decision. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're scared. Maybe it's not again. I need to be rationally convinced. Maybe, maybe you're scared because maybe your entire life you function from, I'm in control. Nobody else is. I got to make it happen. Nobody else can. If I let go, what the heck does that mean? Good news. There's someone way more competent than any one of us who is ultimately in control of history. Good news. We don't have to carry this massive burden of trying to be gods of our own lives and make things happen. Would you consider today, if you're not a Christian, you're a churchgoer, would you consider today 
admitting to God, God, I am not in control of my life, never been. I'm not very good at running my own show. Look at the evidence around me. And today, I admit that to you. Today, I want to surrender my life to you. I'll let you be in charge because I can't do this anymore. If you're a Christian, Jesus, Easter, makes the claim of all claims on you. What do I mean? Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, he ain't your consultant. If Jesus rose from the dead, he ain't your advisor. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's kind of your friend, but also not your friend. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is your Lord. He is, he is my king. If Jesus rose from the dead, he makes a claim. And you know what that claim is? That claim is we don't invite Jesus into our lives to help us with our agenda. If he is who he says he is, he invites us to enter his, his kingdom and to live our lives for his kingdom agenda. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over your money. Who decides how you spend it? If Jesus is Lord, he is over your sexuality. Who decides who you sleep with? If Jesus is Lord, he is over your career. Who decides what jobs you get? If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over our future. Who decides where we live? If Jesus is Lord, he makes a claim. And that claim is what? Love so amazing, so divine. He demands my all. Is he your Lord? Who's running your show? Who's running my show? And the early Christians looked at the resurrection first to give them certainty of God's future. That it would happen, but also gave them the shape, what that future was going to look like. Verse 53 it was the end of 1 Corinthians 15. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sing? Translation, death. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, goodbye. Any Sox fans here? Any from South Side? No? All no-siders? He's, Paul is mocking death. He's taunting death. I love it. And we'll come back to that. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Oh, can we all read these verses together? Come on now, church. Verse 57, ready? But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Woo! Three things that Paul says our future awaits us. Shape our future. And then I'm done. First is defeated death. Defeated death. Paul says in verse 55, where oh, death is your victory, where oh, death is your sting. Paul is taunting death. He is laughing at death. <laughs> the reason why Paul can do that is because of the gospel. This particular uh, point is very personal to me. In my young 46's life, I've experienced more personal, close death this past year than any other previous 40-some years. And one of the things that I noticed about our culture and our society is that people try to tell you that death is natural and that death is a normal part of life. But you and I know deep down inside, death is not natural. We know that death isn't right. And nothing more unnatural than death. Everybody that's sitting here today, C.S. Lewis said, we were built for eternity. So there is a part of our soul that cries out and says, I want to live. There's nothing more natural than a human being says, I want to live. I want to be alive. 
There's nothing more natural and primal than a human being that says, I don't want to die. I want to live. Our society is that death is natural. It's the inevitable part of life. But we know deep down inside, death is not natural. Death is not inevitable. We know that death isn't natural. And if death is not natural, it's been inflicted. If death is not natural, we go, this isn't right. I don't want to die. I don't want to see my loved ones die. We know that death somehow has been inflicted. That death, listen carefully. I'm doing some theological work here. That death somehow is judgment. That death is punishment. Why? How is that, Peter? The Bible tells us. Romans 3, Paul says, for the wages of sin is what? So you and I need to know that we were created by God to live in a world, built for a world to last. God created us and he says, I want you to live for me and I want you to live for other people. And when you do that, you'll experience life as I intended. But man decided, I'm not going to live for God. I'm not going to live for other people. I'm going to use God and I'm going to use other people to live for myself. And the Bible says a natural consequence of living in a way that is not the way God designed us to is death. Death in every way, relationally, socially, physically, spiritually. Death is inevitable consequences of us saying, I'm not going to live for God and for others. I'm going to live for myself. That's why death has authority. It's inevitable. It's judgment. That's why we fear it. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said it with fierce logic. He said, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that death isn't. Do you know what he's saying? It's powerful. Can we all kind of admit together? Everybody, one of us in here, we know we failed in some way. We failed as parents to our children. We failed as children to our parents. We failed husbands and wives, our lovers. We failed as friends. We failed as pastors. We have failed. We all know deep within, I'm not living the way I should. We all know, every single one of us this morning. There are some ways in which we have failed. That's why when you've been on the deathbed of somebody, many people say, I know I shouldn't have lived. I'm not ready to go yet. I haven't lived the way I should. And what Epicurus is saying is, this: look, if death was annihilation, that is, if once you die, that's it. Nobody would fear death. Why? Because if you're alive, death isn't there. But when you die, you no longer exist. Who cares? And what Epicurus is saying, What we fear is not that death is annihilation, that there's something on the other side. Epicurus is what we fear, is that maybe maybe there is judgment. That death isn't, that's it, that there is judgment for the ways that we failed, for the ways in which we haven't lived as we should. Mayor, is there judgment on the other side? And you sit here and go, I don't believe in that kind of stuff, judgment, Peter. Can, can we just all, deep down inside, when you look at all the evil and justice, when you look at what is happening in our world, when you, if you don't believe that there's an ultimate judge who is going to judge impartially at the end and make everything right, what hope is there for this world? Right? Seriously, if you sit there and go, I don't believe in that judgment, what hope is there for our world if you look at the evil and the injustice and go, that, you know, there's deep inside of us that says there has to be an impartial judge who is going to make everything right. Amen? But if there is a judge who's going to judge all evil and justice out there, what hope is there for us? For what we've done. See, what we fear and what men fear about death is that when we die, that there is a payment coming, that there is an ode of the things that we've done and that we won't be able to pay it. You say, I don't, I don't believe in that. Are you sure? Are you positive? Because if you're not, what the gospel say? The gospel says, what you fear in your heart of hearts is true. There is Judgment. There is judgment for the ways in which you and I have lived and the sins of the world. There is a payment due for all the wrongs that's been done. And the gospel says, hello, anybody. Jesus came and what? Paid it. 
all of it. Is that good news? <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ says there is payment coming for the ways that we failed and the ways that the world has failed. You better believe that there is a payment due. But Jesus goes to the cross and he paid it, all of it. You say, how do you know he did? The answer, resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection wasn't a magic trick. Resurrection was God's cosmic receipt thing. Payment has been made in full. You no longer have to face judgment. Is that good news? Man, if, if dad does if, if dad doesn't want to get you out of your seat and go, woohoo, I don't know what will. Church, this is the force of Paul in, in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Good Friday. And he was raised to life for our justification. Not guilty. How do we know? How do we know when we go to sleep tonight? I might not wake up tomorrow. But I know when I stand before my Savior, he's going to say, payment paid. Not guilty. How do I know? Jesus rose from the dead. How do I know? It's God's way of saying, paid in full. Some of y'all are made way better than me. I don't ever keep my receipts. I don't ever keep my receipts. Restaurant store, it doesn't matter. They always go, do you want your receipt? I go, nope, take it. So I don't sleep well at night sometimes because I'm afraid I'm going to get an email or a mail or a phone call saying, you still owe us for that, you know, thing that you bought. And I go, no, I'm trying to pay for that. I'm sure, Jenny, where did I put that receipt? And she'll say, you don't keep your receipts, fool. You got to keep your receipts. Some of you guys sleep better at night. Why? Because when the payment comes, you can say, I know exactly what I paid for that. Here it is. Get out of town, clown. I paid for that already. What is the resurrection? Church, say it with me. It is what? God's paid in full stamp. Is that good news? Let everybody else in the world tell you don't be afraid of death because it's natural. Let everybody in the world tell you don't be afraid of this inevitable. The gospel says we don't have to be afraid of death because it's been defeated. Jesus literally rose from the dead. He literally defeated death. Death has been destroyed. Death has no power. Death has no authority. Judgment has been paid. Justice has been paid. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And the degree to which you and I believe that now will not only shape our present, but our future. Anybody this morning ever hear these voices in your head? God will never forgive for that. Maybe that, but not that. Anybody ever hear these voices in your head? God loves them, not you. Them, not you. Anybody? God could forgive them, but not you. He could forgive them, but not you. Anybody here hear this voice? You know that one mistake that you did? That determined the course of your life, and you will never come over that. Anybody hear that? Anybody? How do you and I overcome those voices in our head? The answer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That says in Romans 8, 1, because of the resurrection, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. Which means because Christ has been raised from the dead, you are not not only in your sins, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ today, I am telling you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, your standing before God is not about your past, but his past. It's not about your record, but his record. If you are in Christ today, when God sees you, he sees you like his son, Jesus. Blameless, righteous, holy, and perfect. Come on now. And the extent to which, listen to me, the extent to which you see yourself as God sees you, not as you see you. Teach. I'm going to teach. Our problem is you see you as you see you, not as God sees you. Transformation will happen when you could sit here right now and go, I don't see me as I see me. I know what that looks like. I see me as God sees me. Come on, church. If you continue to see yourself as you see you, you're going to swing from arrogance when you're doing well. Look at that. I'm all that. To condemnation when you're not. 
But when you see yourself as God sees you, child, not as you see you, joyful conviction. Is that good news? And no, that doesn't give me license to sin. That is the only motivation to obey. Because the Bible says, he did that for me. And God comes along and says, I'm not done with the work that I began in you. We're going to finish this because I finished what I started. So keep pressing, Peter. Keep striving, Peter. Keep praying, Peter. Get yourself in community, Peter. I'm at work. I'm at work. Praise God for the resurrection. Anybody else? Praise God for the resurrection. You look at that resurrection and you go, he sees me like his son, Jesus. God, help some of my brothers and sisters today. Help them to see themselves as you see them. They struggle so much right now in seeing themselves as, as, as you see them. Help them to know because Jesus rose from the dead that you see them as you see your son. I'm not done yet, by the way. That wasn't the end of the prayer, okay? I got, just in case you're wondering. Anybody need that prayer this morning? I do. Will you pray that over me as I pray that over you? That's the only way the hope of the resurrection will be affected in your life. God, help them to see them, not as they see themselves, but as you see them. That's the catalyst for spiritual transformation. Uh, uh, second thing, I gotta go. Uh, glorious suffering. And these next two are going to be critical. Glorious suffering is the second thing that we see. Paul says in verse 49, we are going to bear the likeness of the man from heaven. What do you still notice about the resurrected Jesus? I always wondered about this as a child. Jesus comes up and his wounds are still there. His wounds are still there. His sorrows, listen carefully please. His sorrows are still very much a part of his glory. I'll say that again. The sorrows are still part of his glory. That has all kinds of implications. Here's one of them. For one thing, it means that Jesus carries upon himself, he carries upon himself the visible marks of his human life. He carries upon himself the visible marks of you. In other words, he remembers his suffering. So if there's anybody, if there's anybody, anybody here going through suffering, When you pray, remember that you pray to a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer. Remember that when you pray, you pray to a Savior who says, I know what it's like to suffer. He knows it intimately. Secondly, the last time the disciples saw Jesus, Jesus intentionally shows them the hands. And I always wonder about them, like, why why does he do that? And the reason is because those scars and the wounds on Jesus, think about it, the last time the disciples saw them, they thought those scars and those wounds have absolutely ruined my life. They've absolutely destroyed my life. Why? Because they all thought, we're going to have this presidential campaign. We're going to ride the coattails of Jesus. We're going to get prime cabinet positions in this administration. And then Jesus gets nails driven through his hands and nails driven through his feet and a spirit through his side. And they were certain that those wounds had absolutely destroyed their lives. But those very same wounds, they thought at one time had absolutely destroyed their lives. They now see after the resurrection what? Those very same wounds and scars saved their very lives. Those wounds and those scars inaugurated the kingdom of God which brought redemption and salvation for me and redemption and salvation for the world. Are you following me? The very same wounds and scars that the disciples were absolutely sure were destroying and ruining their lives were used by God to bring salvation and redemption to the world. Let me ask you something. How strong would you and I be today if we thought the very same scars and wounds and things that we're going through right now, if we we thought that the things that we are convinced are absolutely destroying my life was actually being used by God to save your life? 
How strong would you and I be today if we thought, God, this is absolutely ruining my life. The suffering, this hardship is absolutely ruining my life. How strong would we be if under the sovereign, loving hand of God, God said, the very same wounds that you think is destroying your life, Peter is actually at work under my wise, loving, sovereign hand to bring salvation to you and salvation to the world. Would that make a difference? How strong would we be? We as followers of Jesus on this day remember, children of God, that the way to the cross, the way to glory is through the cross. The way to glory is through suffering. Jesus says, remember the scars. Remember the scars. Remember the scars. Somebody needs to hear that today. Remember that the very thing that you think is absolutely destroying your life right now might be used by God to save you, to redeem you. And then lastly, there's this about glorious suffering. The resurrection doesn't say, you know, you're going to get consolation for the life you never had. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection is not consolation for the life you never had, but it's restoration of the life you always wanted. See, in the resurrection... The Bible says you'll get the family you wanted. You'll get the love you wanted. You get the joy you wanted. You get the body you wanted. Every horrible thing that's ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but in some way is used by God to make the eventual joy that much greater than it ever would have been otherwise. How do we know that that's going to happen? There's a third and final thing that's promised in the resurrection. That is material newness. See, we're not just struggling here because of our souls. Our soul is full of anger and discouragement and fear. But our body's also full of brokenness and misery. Our bodies are dying. Our bodies weren't meant to be distressed and diseased and frail and the intolerable burden that it eventually comes. What do you think is underneath all the diets? Is a desire for a new body. Underneath the makeup is a desire for new skin. Underneath all the buying new things is a desire for newness. Deep down inside, there is this thing in us that says things aren't the way it ought to be. And the hope of the resurrection, I hope this is good news to some of us today. If it is, say amen. The hope of the resurrection is not just for our souls. It's for our bodies and the entire world. Is that good news? It'd be silly, wouldn't you think? That God would send his son to enact this amazing resurrection and actually restore just half of it, just our souls and our spirits. And the promise of scripture is that God didn't send his son to restore just half of what's wrong with creation. He came to restore and renew everything. What it promises us is not, as Paul says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. Notice it's not the perishable has been clothed with the immaterial. Our future is not spirits floating in heaven but it is resurrected bodies concrete tangible bodies here's what Paul says in Romans 8 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead if you are a Christian lives in you do you think it's here just to renew our souls Answer, no, just to help us deal with our guilt. No, just to help us deal with our, with our lack of hope. No, the Spirit is in us and the Spirit will one day resurrect this body and make it renewed and restored. When you see Jesus in his resurrected body, he's eating a fish. In the kingdom of God, when we are resurrected, we'll eat We'll drink. We'll dance. You know what else to do? We'll hug. We'll hug. You know why that's important for me? My daughter loves hugs. Sophie loves hugs. I looked at it this morning. I said, what would heaven be without hugs? And the Bible says, you're going to hug in heaven. The Bible says, you're not going to float. You're going to march. Oh, and resurrected feet. We're going to dance. We're going to eat with the Son of Man. Is that good news to anybody? 
Think of people in our church who lost loved ones through cancer and they saw their loved ones deteriorating right before their eyes. What do you think the hope is? The hope for them is when they get to the kingdom, you're going to see your dad and he's going to have a brand spanking new resurrected body and you're going to get to hug him. There's another implication. Almost done. It's not just go, woohoo, I can't wait to go to heaven and, 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 and have bodies. There's implications for our world now. Because the resurrection says our world today matters. God's resurrection means not just escape from this world, but mission to the world. This world matters. I love what this brother Sean from Missionary wrote on his Facebook post. Because he captures it. He says, as a product of American Christianity and culture, I was conditioned to see the cross one-dimensionally as a symbol of personal and spiritual salvation. Now that I've spent more time in marginalized communities and seen the way society excludes minorities, abuses power, seeks economic profit over people, over-incarcerates, racially profiles, excessively brutalized, remains silent in the face of injustice, and mercilessly demands the execution of fellow Christians, I understand that the cross is also an invitation to examine our own collective sins and stand in solidarity with the marginalized in our world as they resist oppression and if we can't stop it be willing to be crucified alongside them anything less than this cheapens the cross and what it means to be a follower of Christ I love that this brother gets it you know what he's saying he's saying if you truly understand the resurrection it's not Thank God one day I'm going to hug. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. It says, I look at the world around me and it's broken. And Jesus says, you need to go out in mission because I died for that. I died to renew that. Karl Marx was wrong. Christianity is not the opiate of the people. Christians don't look around the hurting and go, oh, well, just save their souls. They don't look around the oppressed and go, oh, well, just get them into heaven. We say we address injustice. We address evil. We address hunger and poverty now. Is that good news? Do you have that in you? Is that mission alive in you? If you're not a Christian, you would want, you should want the resurrection to be true. Because I sometimes wonder, I wonder what gives my non-Christian brothers and sisters motivation. If their worldview says, you know, at the end of this, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe those burn up. Maybe who knows? But the resurrection says, we know exactly what's going to happen. God's going to come back. He's going to restore all of these things. So what you do right now matters for all of eternity. Do you have resurrection hope? Yes? Is it working in you? <laughs> Don't you wish we just got up in the morning and so resurrection hope. Boom. Yes. It doesn't work that way, does it? That's why the Bible says what? You got to reckon it. You got to reckon it. What do I mean? CC, come on up. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present times are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. What does the word reckon mean? It means if you're a Christian, you don't get up in the morning going, I just hope that the hope overcomes me. You get up in the Christian and you go, reckon. I'm going to reckon. I'm going to think it out loud. I'm, gonna be I'm not going to be defiant. Here's the difference between defiance and hope. Defiance and reckoning. Defiance is I'm just not going to think about the problems in my life. I'm just not going to think about the world in my life. I'm just not going to think about it. Does that work? Does that work? And the Bible says that's not how we behave. We as Christians don't go, I'm just going to be defiant. We go, I think more, not less. I reckon more, not less. I actually get up in the morning and I go, did Jesus Christ come to earth? Did Jesus Christ die for my sins in the world? Did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? Is he now seated in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God? Is he one day going to return and restore all things? The answer is yes, 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 yes. I think it out. I reckon it out. I add it up. That's how hope for a Christian happens. Child of God, if you're a believer... The risen Christ is now in control of history and there's always hope. Our bad things will turn to good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. Nothing will be able to take away our real wealth, our real joy, our real hope. Are you using this on yourself? Are you using this on yourself? 
Yes? I won't pick on you, Mike. Are you using this on yourself? Daniel Espada, are you using this on yourself? Are you using this on yourself? What would our lives be like if we got up in the morning and we reckoned the truth? Life defeated death. Hope conquered despair. Love conquered hate. The Son of God, by gosh darn it, rose from the dead, man, and he defeated it. He destroyed it. Reckon. Think more. Think more. Add it up. 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 And give you a moment to do that. And give you a moment to do that, church family. Seriously. Give you a moment as you sit. Give you a moment right now to ask yourself, is this hope working in me? Is this hope fueling me? Is this hope at work? Am I reckoning it? Am I thinking more? Am I adding it up? Is the certainty of God's future and the shape of God's future real to you? Alive in you, fueling and motivating you, church. Come on. Add it up. What's he done for me? What's he done for me? Just because he lives.